It's podcast time, and I have the most amazing, beautiful lady with me whose life went down a path that she would never have planned, never expected, never have known what was going to happen. She's a very strong lady who has come through it, but still has issues and talks about them. Are you fascinated? She's a fascinating lady, and I'm thrilled to have Angela with me. Angela, I've got to ask about your second name. What does it mean? First of all, thank you so much for having me, Peter. It's an absolute honour to be on your legendary podcast. So thank you so much for for having me today. Um, So Samata is actually Greek. And I think that my parents wanted me to be a nun, either a nun (laughs) or a saint, because my name is actually Angela Maria Teresa Samata. Um, And it's Greek Cypriot. My father um, was Greek Cypriot. And um, now we don't actually know what it means in Cypriot, but there's only one Samata family. So any of the Samatas out there, you're related to me in some way. Well, that's amazing. Now, what you just totally changed the interview now because I'm now with Abba on the Greek island because you're beautiful <laughs> enough to break out into song walking up to the church. You obviously haven't heard me sing, oh, so right. I won't be doing that today. <laughs> Definitely uh, haven't got a singing voice. You have got a video out that I've watched time and time again about this dreadful thing that happened to you in your life um, and you go around talking about it. Fill us in at the beginning. Who who, who are you, first Mm. of all? Mm. Well, you know, I just think you you think that your life is going to go down one path, don't you? You know, you think you have it sorted, you know. I think I had thought I had it sorted when I was 17, but um, I had a surprise baby. And I kind of thought that my life was going to go down one route, but actually the, the, the TEDx that I've just done is called... Um, it talks about 15 minutes, that your life can change in 15 minutes. And that's exactly what happened to me. Um, and life was kind of going along you know I was we were a very ordinary family you know and life changed and it really taught me that sometimes you you have to try and use what's happened for good or bad um to help others and and that's exactly what I do tell everybody what happened well it's um a story that some people will find familiar because um, we were a very ordinary family and in 2003 we had two children uh, who were three and 13 at the time and at the beginning of October um, I had got my dream job in the art world so I was working just about to start work in the Lady Lever Art Gallery in Port Sunlight and so I was really really excited and uh, again just thought that that was my life you know I was going to go into the arts and I'd always wanted to to go into the arts so I'd done my psychology degree and you know kind of really wanted to think about art therapy and think think about that two weeks later our lives changed completely so at the beginning of October I had my dream job and was very much looking forward but um at the end of October um a series of events occurred that meant that I became a single parent and a widow overnight, literally in a 15-minute space of time that just changed everything. 
And it was because the father of my children um, and the person that I'd, I'd been involved with for a long time um, very, very unexpectedly ended his life. And I was the last person to speak to him and I was also the person that found him. If I remember right, these six words... Six words, yeah. The, when I when I spoke to Mark, um, I was ringing to, you know, to speak to him to tell him that I was on my way home and to ask him why he hadn't gone to work that day. And um, and the last thing he said to me was that um, that he was sorry and that he loved me. And I was kind of, I'm on my way home. We'll talk about this when I get home, you know, because I didn't, you know, it's a real case of. I wish I knew then what I know now. Um, and I suppose that that final conversation, I've spent the last 20 years trying to make sure that, that and wishing that that conversation had been different, you know. You must have gone through every single emotion in the world that we can't imagine to question why. Yeah. You know, anybody who's been bereaved by suicide will understand what I'm just about to say. For other people, it might seem a bit bizarre, but all of those emotions, the questioning, the four o'clock in the morning questions as I asked them, the why, the how, the what ifs, you know, what if I'd done something different? What if I'd driven a bit quicker? What if I had picked up on the signs? What if those last words had been different? What if I'd have asked a different question? Sometimes, you know, those things can go through your head, not in a space of days or weeks or months, but in 10 minutes. You know, you can really feel all of those different emotions, the guilt at not picking up on the signs, were the signs there? Because he hadn't told anybody how he felt. As far as I know, and still 20 years on, I've never had one person come to me and say that they knew that he was feeling suicidal. I didn't know, you know. And you Um, live with them. And I lived with him, and, and so again, it, it really is a case of not understanding what has happened, but knowing that I had to carry on for my children, my family were amazing, my friends were amazing. But for me, it was the steepest of learning curves, and and that's kind of a journey that I think I'm still on. Did it put pressure on you and the children to, uh, as uh, as a unit? It put pressure on us all. You know, when this happens, the first thing you do is try to look after each other. And I remember someone, and it, and I still hate it, you know, I, I remember someone saying to my 13-year-old, and I overheard it, you know, you've got to look after your mum now. You've got to be the man of the house. And I looked at my boy at 13, not even knowing how to shave, how to, you know really just starting his life as a teenager the last thing I wanted was for him to spend the rest of his life looking after me you know I wanted him to be like a regular normal teenager um I think the first time he flounced off up the stairs and and um because I wouldn't let him go out on a school night you know I stood at the bottom of the stairs as he's calling me all kinds from the top and I gave him a round of applause and he said what's that for and I said, because it means that you're a normal teenager who's frustrated with their mum not letting them out. Because I never wanted my children to see me as somebody who needed looking after. I wanted to still look after them. So things change. What about the pressure they were under? Did they ever question? Did it ever get sort of heated with them saying to you, yeah. was it your fault or was yeah. it my fault? Or Because the blame game is in, isn't it? For, for me... 
again, it's part of the learning journey that I've been on, really. It was to really understand what a three-year-old needs when this has just happened to them, when not only have they lost their dad, but they've lost their dad in those circumstances. And what I've realised is, for a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, the whole world revolves around them. I've had you know, people say to me that children have thought that their parents have ended their life because they didn't tidy their bedroom, because they asked for a can of Coke, because, because it's all about them. They just see the world coming from them and it's all about them. So what I instinctively, and now I know there's a theory behind it, I needed to take that pressure off those little three-year-old shoulders to say, actually, dad's head wasn't working properly. And he thought it'd be a good idea to not be here anymore. You know, those kind of words to just take the pressure off that little three-year-old thinking that it was something that they had done, he had done, that made his dad not be here anymore. This was also a learning curve for you, wasn't Absolutely. it? Because each day you were, because you were coping with your grief. Yeah. We've got to talk about this because over the years mm. on radio, mm. I've been castigated and mm. people have been castigated mm. when people say it's the coward's way out. Mm. Now, what do you say about this? Mm. Because everyone's got their mm. own opinion on suicide. Mm. Mm. I think when it happens to you personally... Um, you don't think about it as a coward's way out. And I think I have had the great privilege of speaking to lots of people who've made attempts on their life. And what they ultimately say to me is that um, they totally believe at that moment that everybody would be better off without them. So for me, it's not a selfish act. When you're in that mindset, it's a selfless act. You truly believe that everybody around you, all the people who love you, are going to be better off without you, and you feel like a burden. And when we're when we're assessing people to see if they are feeling suicidal, and to see if they may act on their thoughts and feelings, we measure things like burdensomeness. You know, if somebody feels like they're a burden to you, to the people around them, then it may be that they're considering ending their life. And we measure hopelessness as well, because hope is something that's really important in this conversation. You can measure how hopeless somebody feels and whether that is going to be an indicator that they're thinking about ending their life. So Coward's Way Out, I definitely wouldn't go along with that because some of the strongest people I have met are the people who have recovered from attempting to end their life. But a lot of people listening now will say it's cruel what mm. they have done. Mm. What do you say to that? Because you've been through, you've yeah. been, you must have said, you must have said yeah. all this as you've been on the learning curve yeah, yeah. before you went and lectured, yeah. before you did the TV no, programme, which you were up for an award, which we'll talk about. Yeah. But the cruel way out. Yeah. What do you say to that? You know, I, again, I've spoken to many people who have felt really suicidal and they talk about their worldview kind of shutting down and almost becoming um like a conical view you know like a view of the world where they can't see all the people around them that love them they can't feel that love so it's very very easy to say that you know it's a, it's a selfish act it's a, a coward's way out when actually, again, it it's something that unless you have felt, really felt suicidal, and I have to say, 
I am very, very lucky that I've never felt suicidal. Many people bereaved by suicide feel suicidal themselves. Um, unless you've actually been there. And this is why it's so important that we listen to lived experience, that we really get an understanding of what this is like, because it's the only way we can prevent it, that we can save that one person, is to really understand what it's like to feel suicidal, to really be on that precipice, you know? And if we, we, we have to try and understand that. I had suicidal tendencies when I was younger yeah. because I was fighting the world of homosexuality because mm-hmm. it was a criminal offence yeah. and you went to prison for yeah. buggery yeah. and it was a thing I lived in fear of mm-hmm. and at the age of 14 I decided to end it all and I, I laugh about it because mm-hmm. I took two bottles of children's aspirin, orange flavour and had the most dreadful headache ever and thank God the next day I woke up with a very, very banging headache but I... I joke about it now, but at the time, I didn't see a way out. But in that moment, did you act as as a 14-year-old who was fighting against their own sexuality? Did you genuinely feel that you didn't want to wake up the next morning? Or did you want acceptance or did you actually want to die? I think of 14, I don't know. Yeah. I think that's a great question. I really don't know. Thinking yeah. back, I didn't want to die because I loved life. Yeah. But I, I just needed to yeah. sort of say, well, I'm sorry what I am. I'd like to be straight, yeah. whatever the word straight means. Yeah. Um, so it, it's something, and I put it in my book because I thought it was important yeah. that I would say that. Before we talk about the schools and, and lecturing and, and the, the, the show that was incredibly successful on television and helped so many people. Somebody I know, their husband, they've got four children. Somebody I know, their husband tried to commit suicide three times, brutally. I mean, I won't describe it. Brutally. Last time it worked. The children are now being counselled really badly. I mean, they're having a terrible time. She who I love dearly, is dealing with it, which I don't like, but that's not my choice, by putting lots of posts up all the time on social media, how much we miss you, the kids miss today, it was Father's Day. And I keep thinking, he has destroyed these kids' life because they really are having a really, really bad time. They're all having counselling, every one of them are having counselling, she needs counselling. She's a very strong woman, but I don't get what she's doing. I presume it's the way she's dealing with it. I think everybody deals with it in their own way. You know, some people are very quiet in their grief. And for a long time, I didn't really talk about it. You know, it took me nine months to go to a support group. I have never had one minute of therapy. Okay, so in 20 years, I've never had one minute of therapy. Some people think that maybe I should, and I've definitely not always got it right. You know, I'm sure that there are other people around me that don't think that I've always got it right. But for me, it's about how how can I use my lived experience in a way that somebody listening to this today, somebody listening to our conversation will know that they're not alone will know that actually someone else has stood in their shoes. Someone else has also had children who have lost their father or lost their mother or lost somebody significant to them. And there's no right or wrong way. You know, for some people, they're very, you know, like the person you've just described, very open, very honest, very out there. Part of me is very glad that we didn't have social media when Mark died. 
20 years ago because I'm not really sure that I wouldn't have done the same thing as your friend. Oh, that's interesting. You know, but at the same time, there are other people who, you know, like my kids, sometimes I think they wish that I worked in Marks and Spencers and didn't didn't talk about this um, and, and wasn't working in this field, you know. So I think everybody deals with it differently. And for some people, it's about going out there and, mm-hmm. you know, talking it very openly and honestly. There's also a responsibility in doing that. So as we have our conversation today, I won't talk about method. I won't talk about how... That's why I didn't want to say But yeah. all I'll say is it was brutal. Yeah. That's what upset yeah. me, yeah. that she says what yeah. she says openly. Yeah. I love and adore yeah, yeah. you and we miss yeah. you. And how can yeah. they miss him when he's done what he's done to yeah. the kids? Yeah. Forget yeah. the pain she's going through. That's the bit that mm. gets me. Was there one day you said, I'm going to start giving something back? Was there one actual day you went, or was it the TV show? It's funny, actually, because the thing that made me want to give a bit back was because I went to a support group for people bereaved by suicide in Liverpool. And I realised that the support group that I was sitting in was one of many support groups that... um, that the Survivors of Bereavement by Suicide um, organisation charity run. And for me, giving a bit back was like, how do I help other people? Because I thought I didn't know anybody else who'd been bereaved by suicide. Ah. What it turns out is that I knew loads of people, but no one was talking about it. And it was about how can I help this organisation to have more support groups that I found really, really helpful. So I went to a trustees meeting came out of there as the vice chair of the, of the charity you know they were just like here's a, here's a young one you know let, let's see you know she's enthusiastic let's grab up grab her while we can and I ended up as the head of that organization voluntarily so I was still working in the art world um, and at one point I was running the John Moore's painting prize at the Walker Art Gallery and also I was setting the alarm clock earlier and earlier and earlier to kind of carry on giving a bit back really the first woman to ever ask me to speak publicly about what had happened to us as a family was a, an amazing woman called Jan Carlisle. And she actually, our time together, our lives kind of come together and, and go apart at various points. She was the first person to ever ask me to talk publicly. And I spoke at a conference in Liverpool uh, 15 years ago. And she is also the woman who invited me to speak at the TED to do the TED talk um, just this year. So she is a woman who believes in the power of talking about lived experience. And so she put me on a stage 15 years ago and invited me to talk first. And then she put me on the red dot. Um, just two questions on that. Yeah. One, how did you feel that first talk? And yeah. two, what is TED? The first talk, I was astounded because I wasn't really sure how you broach it. I wasn't sure how you articulate what had happened. So I think the first talk, I was amazed when I came off stage because I was just very honest because I didn't know any other way of being. And there was a little queue formed of people. And what I realised was that not only did people want to say thank you so much for telling us about your lived experience, but also this happened to me. And so I realised really, really quickly, and you must have had this throughout your whole career, where you talk about something that's happening to you. And what you do is it unlocks the ability for other people to talk about what's happening to them. And I understood in that instant the power of doing what we do, of really just being honest about what we've lived through and not always getting it right. Um, 
and when I was asked to do the TED talk, you know, that's the TED talks are like 15 minutes. You've got 15 minutes. So, not... what is TED? <laughs> so, it started off as um, Technology, Entertainment, and Design. I think it stands for TED. And it was this series of talks where you're invited to have an idea and an idea that you think that the whole world should know about. So when I was invited to to give this TED talk that is filmed, you do it in front of a live audience and it's also filmed and then it goes up on YouTube. Uh, it's about an idea that you have that you believe in that you think that the whole world should know about. So for me, um, I talked about people bereaved by suicide, being in a high-risk group of suicide themselves and why it's so important that we look after people who are bereaved and we offer them support. So that's what my TED Talk was about. But it's a real, for me, it's been a real journey of discovery because, you know, usually, again, you, you've done so much TV and radio and you know sometimes you have one hour, two hours, three hours to take people on a journey with you. Well, I had 15 minutes. So it's a real skill to try and really get that down, to give people an insight and to really take them on that journey with mm. you, you know, and to, and, to, and, to ha- yeah. and to give a hopeful message at the end. You Interesting know? you say that. You see, because when you do a variety show on television, if you're down for three minutes, it's three minutes. It's not three minutes, two seconds. Yeah. It's three minutes. So, <laughs> well, that's what yeah, this is. You yeah. know, You've got to do 15 minutes. If, 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 you, if you see the TED Talk, you will see on that stage that, I've got three boxes on the floor in front of me. None of those boxes are an auto cue. So you've got to remember like every word. One of the boxes is um, showing you what's behind you on your, on your slides. One of them is showing you the next slide that's coming up. And the other one in the middle is the biggest timer you've ever seen. You know, so the first word comes out of your mouth. I was in Bridgewater Hall, two, uh, two and a half thousand people in the audience, whatever the capacity is there. Plus you've got the cameras on you. Plus you've got the Madonna mic, which up until just before I went on, I thought they taped it to your face. And it turns out it goes over your ears, but nobody, <laughs> nobody told me that. Um, and you hope that the audience go with you on your journey, you know? Now, let's go on a journey with the television show because uh, tell us about it. You went on as a guest and finished up running it. I did, I did. I was meant to be a guest. And um, when it was the BBC One show, um, Life After Suicide, and it was, uh, you know, it was a time in my life when um, I was able to say yes to that because originally I was meant to be one of the... Uh, one of the interviewees and we had a meeting and I, I'm not quite sure exactly how it happened but I ended up presenting the whole um, documentary um, but that was incredible you know just uh, allowing other people to talk about their lived experience to really have that platform that BBC One platform at nine o'clock you know to really talk about something that has got so much taboo around it um, and it, Back then, you know, it was seven years ago we, we did that film. It was um, it was 2016 when that came out. And to show people what a support group looks like, you know, I'd never seen one before. So it was really incredible to just be able to talk to other people about their lived experience and to think about what can we do to break the stigma around suicide, to allow people to talk about it openly, you know. And, of course, up for awards. Yeah, it won the Mind, me and the team won the Mind Media Award for the Best Documentary that year, uh, which was phenomenal. I mean, 
I mean, we were up against some amazing people. And then we were nominated to BAFTA and we ended up in the same category as Louis Theroux. Yeah. which for someone who's never presented <laughs> a film before, you know, to be with the god of, you know, the god of documentary filmmaking was just incredible. Yeah. And uh, I didn't win, but Louis didn't win either, which, and Louis said we should have won. So that kind of felt like, like I'd won. <laughs> you know, so, um, but those BAFTA parties are incredible. You know, They are indeed, they are <laughs> indeed. Over the years, uh, 50 years on radio, mm. I've dealt with suicide many, many times. Yeah. I, I, Get a bit frustrated when there's campaigns about young men are the yeah. biggest uh, group of suicide. Then we're hearing women are the group. Is it a fact or is it a fact that, that it's open to everybody suicide? Suicide, what I've learned is that suicide has absolutely no boundaries. I have spoken to people at the highest level. I have spoken to people who at every single level of society, in every single profession, and I have never met a, a, a group of people who are immune to this. Culturally, religiously, aged, gender, sexuality, nobody. It touches every single part of society. Ages? It, absolutely. You know, Children? Everybody. And, you know, when, when we have um, organisations like Papyrus, my sister works for Papyrus, and they... Um, are taking helpline calls from very, very young children, you know, under 10, um, who do not want to be alive anymore. So this this literally touches every part of society. And I think every time we talk about figures, we have to remember that each each figure, every single one of those numbers is a person like me, is a person like you. So when we talk about data, we have to really remember that every single one is a personal tragedy, like every single number we still see that 75% of people who end their lives um, in this country um, are men. Um, the, the group that we're seeing the highest number in at the moment is between 50 and 54, so it's very specific. But we also see 75% of people are male who end their lives, but that means that 25% are women. And for me, it's become really evident over the last few years that it's a group that we are not talking about. We we very rarely have open conversations about female suicide, and it's something that I'm really interested in, in bringing to the fore now. What happened with the pandemic to suicides? Um, it, went, it went down. Oh, wow. Um It went down. And... You're surprised at that? Um, not really, because I think that although we were all under pressure and there was, there was a collective trauma, there was also a collective war spirit, you know, and that's why what's happening now about Partygate and the disparity between what was happening at one in one part of uh, of the country, shall we say, and what was happening with the rest of us, there was a real disconnect, you know, and I think that we went through a period of collective trauma. Um, and often they are times that bring people together, you know, like the war spirit, if you like, we're all in it together. It's now and in the coming years that we will become concerned and we will be watching those figures and looking at that data to see um, to see whether there's something that we that we need to do. Before we finish off by giving some advice to people yeah. and what let's lighten it for a while yeah. and just talk about your love of art. Well, I love art and, and um, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, for me, I always have to try and keep my time 50-50. So I still 
very much work in the art world. I am on the uh, advisory board at Tate Liverpool. I like nothing better than walking through those gal- galleries to get into a, a board meeting. Um, I'm still very, very uh, much connected with that world. And in fact, I've just come back from Switzerland uh, where I was invited to go and see um, an art studio um, with a, a sculpture room, um, a wood carving room, a, a stained glass making room um, that is in the grounds of a psychiatric hospital. And the patients at the psychiatric hospital um, are, are given um, permission by their psychiatrists, their psychologists, to actually go and spend time in the arts environment creating work. And it's a real coming together of arts and mental health that I'm very, very, very interested in. Um, so I still keep keep one foot in each world, really. And often now, um, and I've seen a real change over the last 10 years, the two worlds are coming together. Are there signs, going back to suicide, mm. um, are there signs that you look out for? Mm. Have you learned now mm. through talking to so many people mm. and lecturing about it? Are there signs mm. to watch out for? For me, the sign is listening to your stomach. Sometimes when we're having conversations with people and we go away, you will go away from a conversation thinking, oh, I don't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. Or that person's been a bit quiet. I haven't heard from them for a long time. Or that person is being really aggressive and pushing people away. And so all of these can be signs that somebody is is considering ending their life, you know. And usually you get a gut instinct and we we forget to listen to that, you know. And for me, it's about if you think that actually I haven't heard from that person for a while, first of all, speak to them, make contact with them. And secondly, if you're truly concerned about someone and if you feel actually, oh, something's not right, ask them directly, say to them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Are you feeling suicidal? Are you thinking about ending your life? And it might be that they say, no, you know, don't be stupid. Don't ask me, you know, ask them again and it's all this about asking twice really thinking about it and if they say that actually they are having thoughts of suicide have it in your back pocket that you know what to give them so give them some signposting give them a number go on the hub of hope which is a free app and that was born here in liverpool um, and has 11,000 different agencies that can help you around this. How many? 11,000. There is a lot of work going on in this country, and we're really leading the field in many, many areas. So the Hub of Hope I would definitely recommend. And if you have got a man in your life that is feeling suicidal or you're worried about them, phone James's place. We've got a place in Liverpool um, that is there for people who are male and who are feeling suicidal. So phone James's place, have a look on the website, have a look on the Hub of Hope, really educate yourself before you ask that question so that you know what to do if the answer is yes. How can people find out more about you? Uh, just Google me, it's all there, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram. I actually came off Facebook, which was quite a big deal, actually. Um I just didn't like it. It was it was making me feel I had like lots and lots of friends that actually I didn't know who half of them were and it was making me feel like a lot of pressure to go on Facebook every day and to put something up. I actually really enjoy Twitter. I really enjoy Instagram. Um I'm just under my own name Angela Samata S A M A T A and you can just find me on there and I just find them 
I don't know. I just really enjoy those platforms at the moment. You've mentioned that platform. Do you not think that Twitter can be incredibly aggressive? It can, but I have to say, I have only ever had positive things happen on Twitter. And when um, every time the BBC show Life After Suicide Again, which they tend to do about once a year, and in fact, the director, um, my director on that um program was a guy called Leo Burley and he just won the BAFTA for the Mo Farah documentary um and Fergus who was our exec Fergus O'Brien you know Fergus you because we did a show together yeah Yeah, which was phenomenal phenomenal um but again it's um whenever someone says something negative as people sometimes do um I've just found Twitter to be a really supportive community actually I've got to ask in relationships, you're a very attractive woman. You've got a phenomenal personality. When somebody takes their own life, mm. is it difficult to move on? You know, it's when you rely on your friends and family the most. The, the end of my TED Talk, the last thing I say in my TED Talk is don't cross the road from me, cross the road to me. You rely, and I mean that in a, in a physical sense. You know, I've had people cross the road away from me people who should have known better people who've known me a long time and when I've gone back to them the reason why they did that is because they didn't know what to say to me and I think the one thing that I would say is that when you are trying to find your way through a new life a new normal that you didn't envisage I didn't envisage being a single parent and a widow at 32 I mean who who goes into a relationship thinking that when you're trying to find your feet again, you rely on those people around you, crossing the road to you, physically, metaphorically, mentally, coming to you and supporting you in finding your feet again because the foundations of every relationship are shaken by something like this. So trying to find your feet again, trying to find where you are in life and rediscovering yourself as an individual and not part of a, somebody's partner anymore can be really difficult. So the, the one thing I would say is that I massively relied on those people around me. Got to ask the question. Last question. Got to ask the question. I'm sure everybody would want me to ask the question. Have the kids come through it? The kids are amazing. And uh, they both came home during lockdown. Neither are showing any signs of moving out. They are both <laughs> over six foot two now. They are 33 and 22. And they're just gorgeous boys. And, you know, anyone who's been through this will know that you never stop worrying. You know, I always worry about them. They're male. They're, um, you know, they're under 50. And I know that 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 puts them in a high risk group. And I constantly worry about them. But I have to say one of the beautiful things that happened during lockdown was that those boys were in the same house and they got to spend time together and really find out about each other as adults and nothing um, has given me more pride than that. So I hope that they, they, they have an amazing sibling relationship and, yeah, they're, they're incredible. And, Angela, I've got to say, uh, your bit of advice to people out there who are concerned and think maybe they're sitting on a problem. Make the call. Go on the Hub of Hope. Have a look what's out there. There are so many people there that can help you. It's free. Have a little look around it. Um, find the right thing for you. Samaritans is sometimes the right thing, thing for some people. Mind might be the right thing for somebody else. And if you are worried about a young person under the age of 35, phone Papyrus. They will give you support and advice. If you are a professional and you have 
um, experienced something that has made you feel not okay and you're worried and you're having thoughts of suicide, you can phone Papyrus and they will debrief with you um, and, and the, you know, the professionals are there waiting to speak to you. So there are lots of options available, but the Hub of Hope is the one place that I would say, go on it, it's free, have a look around, find the right thing for you. There is something for everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.